This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. And we are on. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much to all the many thousands of people who are tuning in here live to episode three of Rabbi Ruben Epstein Show. Uh, my name is Ruben Epstein, and it is a pleasure to be hosting tonight. Uh, we have two spe- very special guests, which I'm excited to introduce you to in just a moment. But to understand our guests, their positions, and just a bit of a shkafa, I remember when I was a child, and I davened by the shul of Rav Zalman Braun. He was the Sha'ar Mitzion Balacha, and he was a tremendous Rav, a tremendous Paisik. Uh, in Brooklyn, of Brooklyn, wrote many Sfarim. My father, up until today, he calls him the Rav. He says, well, the Rav says this, the Rav says this. He's talking about the Rav, Rav Shem Zalman Braun, the Sha'ar Mitzion Balacha. After he passed away, I davened by Roshan Mitzvah also Rosh Shiva, and that was my my two connections to a rav to a shul. When I came to Eretz Yisrael and I interviewed by Rabbi Berkowitz's Kailo, Rabbi Blackman, who was interviewing me, he said to me, um, "You know, I could see you doing something one day for the Klal," and I started talking to him about different positions. I was 22 years old. And he mentioned this idea of becoming an assistant rabbi. I never heard of an assistant rabbi in my life. I had no idea what that job meant, what the title was. I never heard of this. I was like, what is this? Is this, is this orthodoxy? Like, what, what are you talking about here? And he says, yeah, yeah, it's great. You help out in, in different shuls and different communities and you do different kinds of work. And all right, sounds great. So in the back of my brain, that was like my destiny. You know, you shall become an assistant rabbi. And... <laughs> I remember, <laughs> and I remember when we had different speakers coming in by Rabbi Berkowitz, and one of them was Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman from Atlanta came in to speak. And, you know, kind of hard. He's, uh, he's been in the, in the business, as they say, for many decades. And I remember he spoke about how he started off, you know, doing whatever he did, and he gave a lot of his war stories of different things that he accomplished in his shul. And I remember I was 22 years old, in the back of my brain, you shall become an assistant rabbi. And I remember I went over to him after his speech and I said, you know, Rabbi Feldman, that was just the most amazing, incredible speech you ever gave. What I ever heard, you know, like somebody who just accomplished something over 40, 50, 60 years, how many years he, he turned over the whole city of Atlanta. He turned over the whole city. It's like unbelievable. His story is like unreal. I said, well, one man could accomplish. It's unbelievable. I said, but let's just be honest. I'm 22 years old. I'm supposed to become an assistant rabbi. I never heard of assistant rabbi. Like, how, how, how does that, you just, does it like you just get up in the middle of the shul, just start like making takanas? Like, like why should anyone take you seriously? Like, you're just, I'm just a young guy. Like, how does this go? And I remember he gave me one of the most awesome pieces of advice that really like pivoted my mind. He said, don't you get it? He said, every age has its myla. Every age has the thing that you can do at that age that you can't do at another age. And it struck me as so true. It, you know, a lot of times we think to ourselves, like, we are where we are in our, life, in our lives because this is where we, we're supposed to be. But no, I'm my age today because this is where Hashem wants me to be at my age. And he said, when I was 22 and I went out to my congregants, I was playing tennis with them. I remember he was talking about tennis. He's like, you could go out, you know, you could go jogging with them. You could go play basketball with them. You can play baseball with them. You can't do that when you're 85 years old. 
So he said, you're, you're going to find your niche in where you go, in your age that you go there, in the place that you go. And when you put all of that together, that's where Hashem wants you to go be there as a civil servant for his children. And that was so impactful. And when I became assistant rabbi, ultimately, ding, ding, life goal achieved, yeah, in Staten Island, um, I learned from Rabbi Siegel, who is the Rav in Staten Island, how the smallest things that the Rav or the rabbi does or did, how impactful they would be on people. I saw how when he would walk home from shul, where he would stop in people's houses or who he would, you know, give an extra minute, like shaking their hand. And what's your name again? Every single child, what their name was, what shul, what yeshiva they were in, who their rebbe was, what grade they were in. And that was, it, was, it was so enlightening to see like, wow, a rabbi's job is such a clear mission. You are here to serve your people with like a certain understanding that every little nuance, every little thing that you do really has an impact. And I remember when I was at a gabai in a shul in, in Eretz Yisrael, that we wanted to put together a barbecue for the guys. So we were, you know, before I left Eretz Yisrael, we had our, our, our guys, we had our shul, and it was, you know, the yeshiva guys, guys learning in Mir, guys learning, you know, by Berkowitz, guys learning by Ritzvi Kaplan, like yeshiva guys. And we wanted to make a barbecue. And there were a few guys who pushed back on that. They said, barbecue? Wow, we don't do barbecues. Barbecues are for like, you know, Kirov shuls. And, and I remember I went into Rebbe Berkowitz and I said, Rebbe, what's the hashkafa on making a barbecue for, you know, guys that are like yeshiva guys? Like, is it Bittelsman? Like, how do, you, how do you view this? And Rebbe Berkowitz said to me, every shul has to be viewed as a Kirov shul. Every shul is a center for getting people closer Hashem. And whatever you're able to do, obviously, within certain parameters, but whatever you're able to do to get people to develop that feeling, that's what you have to be focused on. Barbecue is not called Bittlesman. That is called getting people closer as a community, as a people, to the Rav, to the Gabayim, to each other. That's what you should be focused on. Before coronavirus, now coronavirus has created a whole bunch of unsung heroes with our Hatzalah members and our nurses and our doctors, people who we've always had heroes, but now we're obviously we're singing their praises. I think up until coronavirus and obviously during coronavirus, the rabbi, the Rav was that unsung hero. Most people take the Rav of their shul as, you know, the guy who works for me, who whenever I need him, I remember talking to a Rav once and he told me that somebody broke into one of his congregants car, like at three in the morning, he heard like a smash and somebody grabbed something and rang. And the person quickly picked up his phone and called his Rav. And the Rav's like, it is 3 a.m. I, I don't know who did it. You know, <laughs> I can't really help you with this. And what people don't see is the sleepless hours, is the amount of things that go on behind the scenes. It's not just the Rabbanim. It's also, you know, our children's Rebbeim and our teachers and our motors as well. But tonight, I'm very, very excited to have on two people both of who learned by Rabbi Berkowitz. And I, I could call you guys very close friends. Many things I've learned from you. Um, Rabbi Tzisitner, who is the Rav of the Village Shul in Toronto. And Rabbi Shlomo Farhi, who is the Rav of the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue in the city. Now, you guys, many people know you. Of course, you have your followings in Torah anytime. People can click on your links to be able to follow you, follow your classes. 
And of course, you guys are very well known because of your daily dose. I don't think a week goes by without your face, your your messages being, um, I don't know what the word is, imported into people's psyche, just with all of the videos that, you know, the two of you have represented uh, probably millions of views, many hours of time of the things that you guys have done. So it is a a tremendous, tremendous schuss to have both of you on. Um, I do want to tell you before I ask you guys my first question um, that I've got I've gotten so many emails as it pertains to this show and just life in general. And if anybody wants to reach out, they can feel free to email me at email at marriagepro.co. And as of two days ago, all of my classes are now streaming on all podcast platforms. I don't even understand how podcasting works, but there is a tzaddik of a man who took all my classes and put them on podcasts. And including these shows, they will be streamed out on podcasts. Anybody who'd like to access that, however the podcast universe works, feel free to access that as well as from TorahAnytime.com. And before we go further, I just want to say that this Thursday night, we're having on Rabbi Moshe Tavulif and Rabbi Chaim Rosenfeld at 7.30. And a week from tomorrow night, this is where you need a band, by the way. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. Hit it, guys. A week from tomorrow night, we are having a special women's event, a special women's event with Mrs. Jackie Betone and Mrs. Slavi Youngrice Wolf, which I am very excited about. So Thursday night is 7.30, then Monday night. Of course, you're going to see all the flyers and advertisements into her anytime, but definitely please um, follow either of us and you'll be able to sort of get all of those things. Everybody should be signing up to the Daily Dose at 929355. Four two six eight. With that introduction, Rabbi Farhi and Rabbi Sittner, thank you so much for taking of your precious time. I know you guys are probably under lock and key, right? In Toronto, you guys are still out under lock and key, right? Yeah, okay, so you're not going anywhere. Um, but even so, you could have had a lot of other things that you could have been doing right now, um, including teaching all your classes. So thank you for taking your time. And Rabbi Farhi, I know we're practically neighbors here from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Just over the bridge. I know you're not going anywhere either, but thank you so much for taking your time to be here. And Rabbi oh, Farhi, if I could start with you, I'm just, I want, I'm curious in your shul, your shul, um, what's, what's your, what's your mahalach Meaning, what is your kavana? What are you trying to accomplish with your people, with your congregants? Like, we're trying to move the needle. Like, what, how do you view your position? Uh, it's, it's an excellent, it's a, really, it's an excellent question. Um, I, uh, before I became a rabbi, so I, uh, I, I went to some rabbanim that I really respected and I asked them, I said, give me your best advice. Like you've been in the rabbinate for however long, like what, you know, hit me. Remember that hit me with your best shot. Just hit me fire away. I've been doing, you know, the whole cure of the outreach game for all this time. I've not run a shul. I don't really know what that is, you know, well, even though I grew up in a shul, my father was a community is a community rabbi for almost as long as I have any conscious memories. Um, but, but, you know, I, I'd never run one. So uh, it was quite an interesting, you know, transition. So I, I started asking a few different people and some of the advice that I got was invaluable. Um, some of the advice I got was unvaluable, but it's just a difference of a couple <laughs> small, small difference, uh, but was, I mean, I, I remember right, I wrote it down and some of these things that, that people said to me, they really stuck with me. And not just as pieces of advice, but, you know, like when you, like you make a mistake as a kid and your dad's like, if you do that, he's never gonna, or, you know, your mother says like, if you don't, if you 
play in and you let him bully you, then he's going to never stop. And, and you're like, Ma, leave me, leave me alone. Don't talk to anybody. Don't tell me what to do. And then like a week later, you're like, oh gosh, oh, she was right. <laughs> right? Rather, as, a, as a young boy, you'd rather stay bullied, by the way, than have to admit to your parents that they're right. You know, you remember those days? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, what's it called? So, but I, I've seen the advice that they, they gave me all, all that time ago. Not, not just not just as advice, but like manifest in front of my eyes. And one of the bits of advice that, that I got from a, a great man, his name was Rabbi Kimchi, was he said to me that, you know, communities are divided into different types of people. And the biggest mistake, perhaps, that rabbis make is that they think that they're speaking to a homogenous group. Everybody's the same. And therefore, the technique or the style or the vibe, or the strategy, or the approach that I use for this person is pretty much going to be the same for that guy, just a little bit more, a little bit less. And he said, that's, that is just the thing that makes rabbis smack their heads into walls. There are people who are coming to shul because they want to come pray, because they want to grow, they want to learn, they want you to tell them how better to, to lead their lives. And there's people who are coming to shul because it's just like a really nice men's club on Shabbat morning. And they happen to have great whiskeys in the shul, you know? Um, so, so, you know, that guy, it doesn't matter. So the rabbi is thinking, you know, maybe I'll make my speech shorter for that guy. You can't make it short enough because however many minutes you speak, that is too many minutes between him and his whiskey, you know? So what he said was, there will always be people like that. Just embrace the fact that there will be people who won't like you, who won't like your decisions, and that's okay. But aim, when you're aiming your programming, aim your programming at people who want your programming. And then right. suddenly you realize that people are here for that. That is, that was such a game changer in the way I was approaching, the, you know, community building in general. Like every rabbi is trying to make everybody happy. Some people don't want to be happy. <laughs> some people will never be happy if there's something to complain my father once made a bulletin and at the bottom it was such a beautiful move I think he took it from somewhere I don't know where they, at the bottom of this beautiful bulletin he just had a one word at the bottom and it was spelled wrong and then you turn the page and it says we know that this bulletin was amazing but we also knew that some people are not happy until they find a mistake <laughs> in the bulletin <laughs> this word is for you. <laughs> we're we're catering for you as well. <laughs> and, and, now you, and now you make everybody happy, you know. So recognizing that people want radically different things from shul, sometimes nothing to do with shul or praying or learning or anything. Just you know, it might be something else. That was a, a huge help in understanding how to make it actually be a place that everybody really wants to be in. Because wow. investing in the Kiddush might be the best thing that you could do for this mm -hmm. rabbi. Rabbi, you changed everything. Why? You, <laughs> you changed my life. <laughs> you changed my life. Like you, you, you restructured the menu. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, it's funny because I like I noticed with this show. Usually, like I, you know, I, I give my classes on Torah anytime, and I I give them, and that's it. And until this time. First of all, Moshe Sofer um, is really responsible for bringing me on to Torah anytime. I teach in Aryatzbach and he came, he came to a few of my classes and he said, okay, that's it. I'm putting in a camera next time. And I, I, I resisted it. I really didn't want it. And he just did it anyways. 
Um, he's like, just give it a shot. We'll see what happens. And the next morning, he's like, you know, you have like 500 people who watched your class last night. I'm like, 500 people? That's, that's crazy. So he's like, yeah. And from there, you know, that's it. It just made sense. But all my classes, I get feedback. And usually the feedback for Hashem is, you know, it's, it's not negative. But nobody ever says, you know, change this, change that. With some, for some reason, with this show, wow, there's like a lot of Jews and a lot of opinions. Like everyone's like, so here's the format. Okay, so they have like their whole drill of how it has to be and who has to talk when. Um, it, it's very interesting. In a, but in a shul, oh, I, but you see that all the time. It's like everyone has their opinion of how the rabbi needs to do this and that. And you, guys probably, you guys probably remember Rebbe saying at some point, if everybody likes you, you're not doing your job. And yeah. If nobody <laughs> likes you, you're not doing your job. You remember, you remember him saying that? A hundred percent. I remember him saying that. Yeah. So I have like By one way, designated person that doesn't like me. If there's any way you could kind of get the whole sign in the frame behind you. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of OCD people at home right now. Who By are the way, being driven crazy. There's someone who is OCD, who clinically OCD, and they contacted me. They were like, I, I, I can't. I can't even look at, I can't even look at the, I can't even look at the screen. I, I can't do it. So I, if you are OCD, I, I really do apologize. Um, yeah. We're going to work on getting these lowered so and that they can be behind mean, it. And we do not mean to make fun either. It's just I'm yeah. actually I'm actually really glad that you're sitting off to the side because last time you were sitting smack in the middle of those two balls yeah. behind you, and it looked like you look like Mickey Mouse with really Mickey large Mouse, ears. <laughs> you know when you when you plan everything, it sometimes seems a lot better than when it actually plays itself out. You know, so like when you finally like sit down and you're like, oh. <laughs> that was a poor move okay yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna have to move the decal okay it's its own <laughs> you just Definitely. opened up the floor for feedback on the show live come on like <laughs> yeah we'd be flooded we'd be flooded um see, <laughs> see how do you what is your thing your your show is, is a stool and then you also have like the ace part of your show where it's more like it's more outreach First of all, I just want to understand your shul is like it's it's a mixture of people. It's different tracks, different programs. How does it work? Our shul is so incredibly unique, so unique. Um, so on one hand, it's this place that's been around for about thirty years, and we have about just over three hundred families at the shul, and we run kehalacha. At the same time, we have a whole group of people. In fact, I would say probably 80% that are totally not from. And we're always asking Shilas on what can we do to think out of the box, to be able to engage those people and to be able to attract more people. Like I, I once even asked Rebbe, I asked her Berkowitz, I said, what's, what's my goal here? He said two things. Number one, get the people who are in growing and get the people who are out in. <laughs> And it sounds simpler than it is um, <laughs> because we have, you know, as, as Shlomo said, you got hundreds of people there. Everybody wants something else. We have every age, every background. Um, and it's not, it's not easy to engage everybody, but I find the biggest challenge I find is that when we have, you know, so we have lots of people that come in, people that come for davening on Shabbos, Yamim Tovim, et cetera, which is pretty traditional stuff. But then we're constantly running Israel trips. We're constantly running things that are alternative, that are out of the box, figuring out how to get all the people that aren't in our shul involved in the cure of, in the cure of aspects. Like right around our neighborhood is one of the largest reform and one of the largest conservative temples ever, like, like that are around in North America. And they're literally right, right near us. 
So we have 300 families. They have on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, I think about 6,000 people, literally. Wow. 6,000 people Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. It's, it's, and it's, it's insane. So for us, it's like, how are we getting people involved? How are we getting people engaged? How are we getting them growing? How are we getting them learning? So we have these, these two aspects of like trying to run a regular shul at the same time, trying to think out of the box. So I'll give you one example. We don't do anything that's like a regular davening unless we also have something that's what we call an alternative session, right? So it's just like, you know, Rabbi Ari Pemensky or so, like some good speaker who's there, who's going to give a talk. So that somebody who walks in, they say, oh, I didn't know that this was separate seating or I didn't know whatever. They can come in, listen to a class. So everything has an alternative, which, which really helps us uh, engage like all different demographics and different backgrounds. So that's helpful. For sure. what's, what's the draw for a person who, who grew up you know, I, I grew up, as Charlie Rari tells me, he says, like, you grew up like yeshivish from birth. You know, like, that's, that's your upbringing. Like, that's, that's how, that, you know, that's how I grew up. You know, to me, I had to, like, change my, my vocabulary, like, how I spoke to people. And part of the training by Berkowitz was, you know, this public speaker training. It wasn't easy for me to, like, drop a lot of, like, the English words. You know, Shlomo, I've, Shlomo, I've heard you say, like, say, like, you know, when you talk, you say, well, like, Hazit, and you say things like that. Like, you know, like, what, to me, right, that's the Sephardic version of, you know, how we talk. It's how we talk. We have our thing. Never. Yeah, never, right. I, I remember I spoke once, and I was talking about, like, the Gadol Adar. The whole speech is about the Gadol Adar. And, like, five people came over after, like, what's a Gadol Adar? And I was like, oh, like, you have to, like, reprogram your brain. Like, you're talking to other people. And I always wonder that when you're talking to when you have a person who walks in off the street, I know, or I think I know, that it used to be very, like, intellectual. It used to be intellectual. Like, it, it was like a, I've convinced you. Is that still how it is? I mean, even Aisha Torah was, was, is known for their brilliant, the, 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 the proofs of God and, and, you know, all these things. Is that still how it is? Or is it more like the hearts? Like, what, what is a draw for somebody to go from, I'm not going to say out, because everyone's in. We're all one. But, like, for somebody to, like, feel like, I, I, I got to make that big jump. What is that? How does, what is, is, it, is it the heart? Is it the rabbi? Is it like, is it the davening? Is it the community? Like what, what, is there a common thread through all this? Can I just go back and talk about that Sephardic thing for a second? <laughs> Every time he says, like when he opened up tonight and Shlomo was like, speak about the Sephardic thing for a second. You know, he just, he opens up and he's like, you know, when I first started, uh, I was talking to many rabbanim and, yeah. you know, Rabanim, and the way they do with the accent and the whole thing, it, no matter what they say, it always sounds legit. You know, Hazal say, they just get rid of the ch, becomes like a ha, you know, <laughs> and then the finish, it's done. Like whatever they're saying is legit. I see him at the, at the Project Dreams Park, a thousand people, his glasses are falling off his face. He's talking to everybody and he's saying ha, 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 with the accent and everybody's like, whatever he's saying, yes, MS, we, MS. We believe you, know, you. we believe you. you know? I'm talking to Sephardim, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. I had to, it was your Rabbanim. Can, can we just take this moment? <laughs> can we take this moment to just all learn how to say a Sephardic chet? I think that would be very, very helpful. Well, how do, do you that? do it? How Is do that you do okay, it? Ruben? Oh, sure, please. Okay, so I want, you, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that you are a cat and that you have a hairball stuck in your throat. <laughs> the sound that you would make <sighs> that's it that's it you nailed it right there so if you could kind of go cat hairball and then just back it off a smidge 
you nailed the head. <laughs> By the way, I just I don't I don't mean to stereotype here, but I think that there's there's it's more than just the chet. By the way, there's also many syllables. It's not Yaakov. It's Yaakov. It's much more authentic sounding, right? It's not Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. It's Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. It was six. It was six steps. They didn't just get there. They went each one. You understand? Um, what I'm... I think I think you're speaking to stuttering Sephardim. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me that Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. Tell me that he went down. Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. He did it. You see? Did it? He did it. He did it. You see? No. No, you said Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. Almost like he was starting some sort of rap battle. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> Yaakov. By the way, I learned in the Tzvi Kaplan. So over there, the whole brisker, you know, Havara, is yeah. the, you know, Shema. You know, they do it too. So I yeah. kind of feel like we have a, we have adherence on both sides of the aisle, you know, for the, uh, for the various levels of pronunciation. I never understood, by the way, where the nun came from. When in, in like in the Ashkenaz version, the yeshivish Ashkenaz version, say like Yaakov is like in a, a brisker. Yanke. Where yeah. did the nun come from? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like a typo okay. many generations ago. <laughs> Sorry about that. We're turning on a dangerous topic. But I'm not sure. But Tzvi, Tzvi, back to back to question there. I want to know where we're. Yeah, where are we in Toronto? Um, you, were, you, were, you were asking about the, the nature of what it is that uh, that attracts today. Yeah, what is it that attracts people? In? I, uh, I'm curious. Serious? No, honestly, I mean, oh, like, Rebbe, pick me. Okay, Shlomo, <laughs> take this away. Go ahead, Shlomo, go ahead. No, 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 Safardi, you go first. I love, I love the awkward, I love the awkward moment when Ruben throws out a question and neither one of us knows who should answer it. Who are you talking it. to? So we just wait and then we both start. Okay, Shlomo, go ahead. Go, go. I, knew, you, I knew who should answer. It was supposed to be you. I was just waiting. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Shlomo, go ahead. Um, I, I, you know what? I, like I said earlier, there isn't a hard and fast answer. You know, you, to try and kind of label or give one answer for everybody is to ensure that actually when we're referring to nobody, we, the nature of, of education, especially in Judaism, is such that you know, you, you're attempting to give the people the answer that resonates with, their, what, with what's called their shorosh anishama, the root of their very soul, you know? And uh, we just experienced that over the holiday of Passover, where there's, you know, literally custom-made answers for each for each child, and that's the same way that that that, that we are now. But I think um, there has been a huge shift in uh, in the strata of the people, where there was once a time where the most important thing was whether or not it was true. You know, and therefore the proofs and the uh, the incredible effort, you know, put in to prove God's existence and that God gave the Torah and so on and so forth and so on and so forth was just not it just, you know, that was everything, because until you did that, it was irrelevant, everything else. Mm -hmm. And today what we're finding in is that, you know, we're living in a society where, you know, subjective truths, they, they carry the day. You know, you could be whatever gender you want to be. 
just because you said that you are that gender. That identifies you as what you are. So, you know, the fact that you could prove truth almost overnight became irrelevant because all you did was you proved your truth. I, I see this line now all over this. Live your truth. What does that really mean? If it's only your truth, it doesn't. By definition, like, isn't that, that takes away from the actual absolute value of the word. But because that's the mindset that people are coming from, you know, don't tell me what to do, who to be, how to identify, who I should love, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum and ad absurdum. Um, so we're living in a world now where people want to understand, tell me, what do I get? If I do this, what do I get? And, and here's the fascinating bit. For generations, they, we were told that rabbis who spoke about heaven and hell, they were doing everyone a disservice because, you know, they were talking about fear-based Judaism. And that doesn't work, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work. Ironically, we've come full circle to where people do want to know, what do, I, what do I get if I did it, and what do I lose if I did it? They just don't want to hear about its value to me in the next world. They want to hear about its value to me in, in, in this world. And, you know, Rav Noah Weinberg used to talk about this all the time. He quoted the, the Gemara, where the Gemara says, you know, I beg of you, you know, you know, don't, don't inherit two Gehinams, two, two forms of hell, you know, hell in the, in the future, but more importantly, you know, a hell on earth. You know, when someone is, it, is hedonistic, when they're focused only on themselves, the irony is that as they take more and more and more and more for them, and they just want to drink and they want to do whatever they want and be with whoever they want and, you know, not focus on a relationship and never give because it's only about taking. <clears throat> the irony is that all of that taking, which was so that I could have more, winds up leaving you an empty shell of a person. You're alone, an alcoholic. You have no one who loves you. You spent all your money on, on short-term pleasures. So all these things, when we talk about the discipline of Torah, um, actually pay dividends, never mind in the next world. That's true. But for those of you who are kind of new to this and don't even know what you think about, uh, you know, life after life, if you will, you know, let's talk about right now what Torah does for you. And I think for most people, that has been the message that's resonated when we talk about Torah. Um, I, I think that's really the answer. But it's interesting, Ruben, because I think there's something that you put into that question. And, and you tell me if you agree with me, um, uh, Svi, that I, I, I kind of feel is, is almost... I'll give you an example. We started running an organization called Chazak. So someone said, oh, where is your synagogue? Right. So I said, we, we don't have a synagogue. He says, well, why don't you have a synagogue? You're a rabbi. You don't have a synagogue? And I said, well, the point of Chazak was to reach out to people who weren't affiliated, who weren't connected with a synagogue. I said, if I opened up my organization in a car wash, I get to see people. People wash their cars like once a month. I get to see them 12 times a year. But if, if I, I plunked it in a synagogue, I get to see them like two times a year. So I get to see them on average six times more if I opened up Chazak in a car wash. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. you ask what makes people come to synagogue and then started talking about learning. I think those two things are different animals. And rabbis who have an understanding that some of the people, their journey and their connection to Judaism is going to come through synagogal, through, you know, normative, uh, life cycle, 
dogmatic Jewish practice-based elements, for those people, you know, the way to get them perhaps or get to them is through the doors or through the processes of a synagogue. But for many other people, they, they, want, they want to hear a voice of reason, a voice of morality, a voice of wisdom that is unbending to the, you know, the sands of time. Uh, and it, it's almost like it just happens to be from a rabbi. And right. it just happens to be from the Torah. And it just happens to be God's wisdom. And after two or three or five or 10 or 20 things that are really smart that you said, they're like, well, where are you getting this from? Because it's gold. <laughs> and then you're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that moment. You're like, step into the synagogue. You know what I mean? I, I, that's kind of the crossover moment um, for many wow. people. Wow. I hear you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very powerful. It's so true. I, I was just thinking, no, I'm like just processing through what you're saying. I, I was just thinking, I, I went on a Shabbaton and I met a girl. Arnava runs these, these annual Shabbaton where they have over a thousand girls. It's, it's like amazing. And usually when you meet people, where you're from, Brooklyn, Bar Park, Lakewood, Flatbush, Muncie, whatever, five towns, you know. And there was one girl. Just to be who, clear, all the guys are now wondering, how do I get on the Shabbaton? On the Shabbaton. Yeah, by the way, so a lot of people have asked. <laughs> no jokes. Some guys like, could I come as a waiter? No. Can I come as a cameraman? No, chum. Like, yeah. Like, no, what, you can't come. Hang out with the girls. What is this? Yeah. No, you can't. You can't go. So it happens to me that it, that Shabbaton was a big catalyst for us starting this Arnavashad from that gmail.com, which a lot of people have signed up for to submit their, their resumes because just to give more fuel to the fire of getting more girls engaged. But there was one girl, one of the most inspiring people I met. And, and it's, an, it's a marathon Shabbaton where you're literally sitting with people for, from Friday afternoon till Sunday afternoon, 48 hours straight with just about zero sleep. And there's one girl who came. I said, where are you from? And she said, some little town in the middle of near Toronto, but not Toronto. And well, so I said, like, well, what are you, what are you doing save. here? What? Good save. Yeah, not Toronto. Near Toronto, but like a little town. Me, and I said, he's a New Yorker. He meant Toronto. Then he's like, pull it back, pull it back. It's a small town near Toronto. Can I tell you something? <laughs> Going back to the beginning for a second, Ruben is the classic, classic, classic New Yorker. Because right in the beginning, he says, you know, Rabbi Sittner from Toronto. And then we have Rabbi Farhi from the city. The city. As if there's only one city in oh, the that makes sense. That's there's only one, yeah? There's only one city. Here we are, international, international. Yeah, people from everywhere. Rabbi Farhi, how do you it's talk me. about where you're from? The city. Sorry? No? Where, when you say uh, where you're I, from, the, you say, the city that doesn't sleep, maybe. I don't know. If, yeah, you know the city. I give some extra details uh, to ensure okay. that they I know apologize. The city okay. Anyway, Toronto, which is somewhere outside New York. Somewhere outside New York. Basically, if you're not here, so you're just somewhere outside out, of here. Out of town. <laughs> out of town. Somewhere out of town. But she's like out of town, out of town. And I said, what brings you on the Shabbaton? Our Navas, obviously, we cater to everybody, but like, like what brings you here? So she said, actually, I'm here because of Torah anytime. Because she, she has no Rav, she has no Rebbe, she has no real, you know, conventional upbringing in the sense of like teachers and moras and all of that. But she said she sits on Torah anytime. She has her Halacha Rebbe. She has her Hashkafa Rebbe, her Parsha Rebbe. She's like, I literally sit there with all of my rabbis and, you know, if I'm able to come here now and meet all of these rabbis in person, you know, so like she, she literally comes in and she's like, 
Clarice and Clichene. Like she knows like everything based on what she learned from this. They are hundred percent right. It's such a global thing. And the idea of, of a shul is not is not only that. I mean, I think also that one thing that I took away from many things I took away, but you don't have to be the rabbi to make somebody feel good to come to shul. You know, you could just be the guy in the back bench who's like, hey, good Shabbos, And that's why people come to shul. Someone once told me that people go to shul either for the rabbi or for the people or for the davening. Right. Sometimes you go because it's like some big or you like the Kalbach style or whatever. And sometimes it's your chevra and sometimes it's, it's the rabbi. But sometimes for the kids. Can I tell you something? First of all, Ruben, I think what you're saying is true. I think it's what you're saying is true. And Shlomo, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, we can't get stuck in like the traditional synagogue shul model. The way I look at it is that the shul, at least for a cure of shul, is just one of the many cure of programs. Because when somebody, chas v'shalom, or, or he was a chas v'shalom, loses, <laughs> as Shlomo would say, somebody loses nice. a parent. Well, that was he didn't, good, he right? didn't say God, man. I like, I like how your voice gained like 30 pounds just for you to say that. You're like, no, 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 no. Chas v'shalom. Some connection between the voice of God and Darth Vader because he's darker <laughs> than the other white people. Calm down. <laughs> That's, that's my Sephardic, like, you know, in, okay, can, can we move away from the Sephardi Ashkenazi thing? <laughs> I, I, what I find is that because we have that identity also, there ends up being a whole group of people that end up reaching out for a, a ton of things. I, I'll give you, an, and it ends up being that those things that brought them in lead to an incredible journey of, of, of growth in Yiddishkeit. I'll, I'll give you one example, one example that comes to mind is I had, I got a call from my executive director. She said to me, uh, she says, one of our members, father passed away. His name is Vladimir. I'm like, I don't, do we have like somebody by the name of that? Like, she's like, yeah, apparently we do. So she gives me the number. I call him up. I said, their son's name was, uh, we'll call him David. Cause that was his name. Anyway, call, so call him David. David I'm so sorry, your father. <laughs> call him up i say david i'm so sorry i'm sorry to hear about your father okay i'll meet you at the i'll meet you at the uh what's it called the place where you you know the chapel for the for the for the cemetery now all the, i'll meet you tomorrow two o'clock shabbos was like 3 30 okay and 3 30 4 o'clock i think which i was like the earliest shabbos on a friday kids are the i show up at two o'clock to this to this uh to the chapel i look around there's like four people there so i said to the guy where's like where is everybody he says, look, my father was 93 years old. He was a survivor from a Ukrainian uh, Nazi labor camp. He said he didn't have anybody. So I was like, come on. Like, what are we going to do? What about Kaddish? He says, we'll say Kaddish anyway, right here. I said, what do you, what do you mean? I said, you got to have a minion. He's like, nah, you don't need a minion. It's okay. We're going to say it right here. And I'm like, first of all, the guy has to be buried first. And second of all, you need a minion. Anyway, I really pushed back. I said, we're not doing it. Anyway, he gets up. We start. He starts giving his hespid. He gives the hespid in Ukrainian. Okay, couldn't understand a word he was saying. At the end, he says, at the end of his, his hespid, he says uh, something about his father saving 10 people. So I said, uh, I said, fine, it ends. We get into our cars. We start driving to the cemetery. We get to the cemetery. We're driving on. We're almost there. And sorry, one second. We go, we're almost there. On the way, on the way there. I call the guy, and in the meantime, I'm on the phone with everybody I can think of. Please, I need you to show up to the cemetery. We need a minion. We need a minion. We need a minion. I'm calling every. I don't even know if we're going to have one. And I knew the guy would hold it against me forever, forever, if we didn't get a minion. 
we show up to the basic virus. As we're pulling in, the guy calls me. He wanted to ask me a question, whatever. I said to him, I said, what, what were you saying, by the way? What were you saying in your speech? He was Ukrainian, but what did you say at the end? He said, look, my father, one night in this Nazi labor camp, decided that he was going to try to save 10 people's lives. And he made an escape plan, and he saved 10 men from this, from this concentration camp. 10 men. He saved their lives. As he said that, we hung, we were hanging up the phone. We're pulling into the cemetery. Pulling into the cemetery, I look behind me, and there's a trail of cars. A whole trail of cars that are behind me. Everyone gets out of the car. We all, take, we all gather around. I look around. There's 10 men. And this guy looks at me. He says, who are these people? I said, I don't even know. The 10 Jewish people. I'll, I'll read it afterwards. 10 Jewish people. 10 Jewish people who just showed up. He couldn't believe it. He was blown away. He looked around. We did the Kavura. He starts crying. Like, who are you guys? And he says, look at this. My father saved 10 men. And 10 men come back to, to, for his Kavura. No joke. Two weeks later, the guy calls me up. He says, you know, I never had a bris. I want to have a bris. Right. Two weeks later, he has a bris. This was the beginning of this guy's journey. Now, he would have never reached out to us. It, you know, it was, you know, this whole membership thing, this whole idea of, of, of needing, a, needing a shul or whatever. So I look at it as one more pathway for people to get involved, people to get connected. And this transformed the guy's life, transformed. So I, I see it as one more way to, for people to get involved, and it's powerful. You know, it really is. Wow. But I, I want to sum up something that I think you both are really saying, which is, which is, which is just, to, just to drive this point home. What you're both saying is that the, the rabbinate and the shul are, are really, the shul is just the center. But the, the rabbi's job is to utilize that center, be impacting in, in all various facets i'm not even talking just from like the i'm not talking about he performs weddings and funerals and all that i'm talking just like it's a vehicle for him to 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 be involved in people's spiritual growth it's almost like the doctor of their spiritual health through all the various things you know like all the various parts of their life you know what ruben it's it, it you reminded me of something just so spot on you know um in the summer the syrian community goes down to Deal, New Jersey. Like everybody descends in mass from like Manhattan, from Brooklyn, from other places. They all go to Deal. And all of a sudden overnight, it becomes like full of all these people who are not there. The whole year round, Deal is empty, okay? You mm-hmm. have some Ashkenazim go to the, to the Hamptons, very similar, but they, they just empty out and they all go. My synagogue over here in Manhattan, um, you know, comes the summertime, almost all the people are gone. There's very right. few people left in the synagogue. Where is everybody pretty much? They're all in one location in yeah. Deal, New Jersey. So some, a bunch of people came to me and they said, listen, Rabbi, you know, we're away for two and a half months pretty much. You know, are you going to come to Deal so that we could have the classes and we could learn with you and we could connect and blah, blah, blah. And um, I said, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I have to ask the board of the synagogue. And mm-hmm. I went back to the board of the synagogue and I said, you know, this is such an interesting question. Am I the rabbi of the people or am I the rabbi of the building? Great question. Now, it's, I want, it's a little bit more complicated in my scenario because we wind up having, so people think, oh, there's 20 people there every Shabbat, you know, but we wind up having 300 people on a Shabbat 
an empty Shabbat in the summer because we're inundated with, uh, with tourists from all different countries. Right. So the question is, who are you the rabbi? Are you the rabbi of the building? And it, you know, it can't have that the building shouldn't have a rabbi or should the rabbi be with the people? You know, what is the rabbi of? So what's fascinating is, I mean, taking out the travel, you know, the, the tourists coming and then the synagogue and the community and the people kind of being in multiple places. Um, this, just this mindset, it's so interesting because especially all of a sudden you have rabbis of synagogues, COVID hits. They're on vacation. There's no minyan. There's no building. They go home. Now, they might give a Zoom shiur, one, you know, because right. like, oh, I heard that other people are doing this. I should. But if your mindset was never like, I am the babysitter of the services. I, I have to be. If the way you see what it means to be a rav of a kihila is a shepherd, someone that's taking people from point A to point B. It's an unbelievable, it's very, very different, you know, because COVID hits. And in many ways, my, my life didn't change at all. It just shifted from having all classes in people's houses and classes with different groups and into turning that into a digital version of that. But nothing changed. And it's such an interesting time as a rabbi, if you are thinking that way. And again, I'm not smarter, better, more heartsig, like they say in Yiddish, you know, I'm not dipped. It's just that I came to this job from first having been a rabbi in outreach where it was all paramount. The, the only thing, you didn't have a building. You didn't have programs. You just had relationships with people. Uh, there's another line in my, in, in my little document that I mentioned earlier. It's such a beautiful line. Uh, rabbi Tugentov shared this with me from London. He said, you know, someone once said to him something. It changed his outlook completely. He says, I don't come to synagogue because I like Rabbi Togentoft. I come to synagogue because Rabbi Togentoft likes me. Oh, wow. Boom. You, you know That's what I mean? A, yeah. And by the way, you can like the most crotchety, complainery, you know, if that's a word, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, acerbic, cynical. You could love that guy. I have a couple of guys in the synagogue. I, the two of them, they sit together, they complain. You know what I call them? I call them the two old guys from the Muppets. <laughs> you know, the two guys that are sitting at the top, right? You know, all making all the... Hey, they love it. And, but I bought into it. I laugh with them at the synagogue. So when, like, if they're complaining, the, the chazan is too slow, I'm like, he's too slow. This is crazy, right? If he's too fast, he's too fast. This is crazy. And now I'm, like, in on the little, you know, and we, like, complain together. But they know that I'm just in it as a joke. Okay. And kind of extending that. So, so often a rabbi needs to think, especially now, like, how do I keep these lifelines to all these people alive? How do I make them feel cared about? How do I make them feel connected to me and through me to religion? Right. How do you do that? It's, 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 it's you're saying such a powerful, I, I love your muscle that, that, you're, you're, what you're saying is that the, the rabbi is the shepherd of the people, wherever they may be. It's like, and I want to segue to something else, but, you know, I remember that even Israel always has this, you know, dilemma. Let's say a Jew is caught in, you know, Africa or something. Are we, are we the IDF? We're the Israeli Defense Force. Or because we are the IDF, we're, our job is to go out and rescue and help Jews wherever they may be. It's such an ideological thing, but you're, you're, you're 100% right. So it's so, it's refreshing to hear 
that a rabbi understands that it's, I'm not here to, you know, for them to wait for me for Shemana Esrei. I'm here to be the shepherd of the synagogue, which is really, it's heartwarming to hear that part Hashem. Now, I, I know that Tzvi, or Tzvi, I know that you talk about, you said a line once, which is very, very powerful. And um, I don't want to talk too much about this because it was in the days that I was starting out. I, I learned so, so, so much from you. Uh, when we used to do Israel Shabbat experience on uh, all those things. And my wife told oh, wow, me, the I good old days. the good old days when I just literally just watching you walk into a room of complete strangers. You, I remember you, you were the first one to say to me, Ruben, stay to Hillam. I was like, is there like a bomb coming? You're like, he's like, no, before you walk into something, you say to Hillam, which of course I now do before every share, like every time I did, I'm like, okay, Rabbi Tzusidner told me that, Rabbi Tzusidner told me that. And I remember just, just watching you just like learning like this is a guy who walks into a room and it's like let me tell you guys i know how to break dance and uh, you know we're like the coolest dudes around and just had answers for everything and i was like Wait. wow oh man okay you know how to break what? dance he, he was talking about someone else you know but i'm taking no, the credit no, for it no 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 i got the right guy oh him yeah yeah it's me very good and he would be dancing across oh, okay. the room and they'd be like whoa if this is a rabbi i'm in like he was he was amazing and i learned so much just how to answer questions and be upbeat about things that we take so simple. I remember somebody once asked a question about what is a base medrash? And I remember you said to me, like, you know, we were talking about who's going to take this answer. And I was like, let me just watch you do this. And you were like, a base medrash is where Jews go to understand the, the word of God. And they argue out what is the law? Because they want to know what does God intend for us to live our lives to the max? And I'm like, I said, that. oh, that sounds like such a, like I was inspired, you know, like I was, I, I remember learning, there's so many things. Again, I don't want to go into all of them. I've learned so many, so many things from you. Um, all and I, I remember is going to like random kibbutzim in, in like parts of Israel and eating really good ragalach. That's all I remember. Yeah. <laughs> those are, those are very, very interesting um, weekends to say the least. But there's something you said on, on one of your classes and I know that this is a topic that you talk about a lot. And that is that, if people want to feel good about themselves, like if you want to get up in the morning um, and really feel good about yourself. Um, and before I finish the sentence, I just want to tell you that I, I don't know. I'll probably post this later on, but I've, I've been studying a lot about the idea of energy and not like weird energy, like, Oh, I see, you know, halos and stuff like that. Not like that, but just the idea of like, how do you, what do you eat? And like get just to get your energy up like throughout the day. And I, I basically categorize it. There's like four things. There's basically like there's sleep, there's what you eat, there's exercise, and then there's your mental state. Mental state. And I'll give a whole class on this at a different time. But there's something that you said, let's see, you said that if people would appreciate what they have rather than what they could have, they would just be so much happier, much more content. They would just be, they feel more, they, they would feel good. They would just get up in the day and be like, wow. I mean, Modani, that, that's where it starts, obviously. But my question for you is, is that, and we'll get to you, Shomo, I want to hear about your, your take on this, but I know that there are so many people and I deal with, unfortunately, I deal with a lot of dating and marriage and fertility and things that people are sort of waiting for something that is not always there, right? You have a lot of girls, older singles who feel like, yeah, very nice. Um, I could focus on what I have, but my friend, right, who's 24, I'm 24, my friend, whatever. They have things that I just don't have, right? People waiting for a baby, that, that's a challenge for many, many people. Now with everything going on, I'm not, I don't even want to focus on coronavirus, but 
Parnassa. I mean, people who, who overnight, I'm an accountant, their Parnassa was just totally shut off. How, how does a person get up in the morning with a resolve to just feel the simcha? I am where I, I, I am where I need to be. I'm doing what I need to do. And have that simcha to focus or, or have the, the, the mental capacity to be able to say, I'm good because I have what I have and what I don't have, I don't have. I'm curious to hear, how do you do that? I know this is a, this is a topic, so a theme, this is something that you like talking about. If you don't mind, please, please enlighten me. I want to hear. All right. So I'll enlighten you. Just kidding. I'll tell you like this. First of all, I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, and actually, we, no, we mentioned this earlier today. A year ago, a year ago, last Pesach, I was speaking at a program in Niagara. You were uh, at the uh, Orna- it was an Ornava program, right? Ornava. Mm-hmm. The Ornava program. And we were messaging each other a lot, uh, that Cholomite. Mm-hmm. After Yamtif, and a big question you said is like, you know, you, you said to me, to be like, you're talking about every topic. You're talking to people about marriage. You're talking about parenting. You're talking about, you know, Halacha and Shabbos and Kashras and everything. But like, what's your niche? Like, what is your area that you're focusing in on? And that like... I left Pesach and I was just, I really like, I was thinking about that so much. Two weeks later, I think approximately, it was this Parsha, this coming Parsha, Parsha's Kedoshim. And I remember I was learning Nisiva Shalom with my Chavrusa. And we got up to the, the, he has a piece about Kedoshim T.U. And he says, Kedoshim T.U. You're muted, you're unmuted. Are we good? Can you hear me? Yeah, someone muted us by mistake. Okay. We're good. So, so we get to, we get to this piece about Kedoshim Tiyu. Kedoshim Tiyu is that you should be holy. I don't even know what that means. But the point is, we're told to be holy so many times, and there's, there's no mitzvah to be it. So what does it mean? And long story short, Nesiva Shalom says, it's not that you're supposed to be holy. You already are holy. It's this thing, this Kedusha B'meav, like the Gemara Tainus says. Right? There's something that's already in you. You have to be Shomer over it. Like You have this value. And I think to get to your question, Ruben, like how people wake up in the morning and, they, and, and, and they're not happy. They don't, they're not so free. And they feel like something's missing. They see other people succeeding and they feel like they're lacking. And I think bottom line, I don't want to oversimplify because it's a really big topic because after that, by the way, after our conversation, I spent months, months. I said, I'm going to read every one of Rabbi Tversky's books on self-esteem, on self-confidence, et cetera. Because that was that whole, that whole, it just got me down this whole self-esteem path. Uh, our, our conversation in this VART, I ended up getting in touch with Ira Torsky. We were talking for a while. I read every single thing I could find on self-confidence. And, and I felt like bottom line from a, from a Yiddishkeit perspective, there's this thing in us that has unending, unimaginable, uh, eternal value. And we don't even see it. We don't realize it. We don't recognize it. We're not curious it. So you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't know, what am I? Nothing. What's he? He's great. He's got the da-da-da show and he's got the, he's making a million dollars and everybody else is doing well. And I think what I've come to speak a lot about is seeing our value. Like just to, just to see who we are. Like, you know, when, when the Rambam says everybody's supposed to go through life as if, you know, the world is total balance and their actions could tilt the balance of the whole, what, what was he saying that for? To, to make us feel good? Like you should feel like you're something, but really you're not. It's real. It's real. And, and, uh, and I, I, this, this opened up like a whole, a whole can of worms for me. And I, 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 there's, there's a story that I tell over a lot. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop with this story. But the story I tell over a lot about seeing value, 
uh, you know, I go on these trips every single year, Israel trips, Israel trips. So one time I was, I was partnering with, uh, you know, Simcha Tolwin in Detroit. He said, so he runs H Detroit. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know who he is. He runs H Detroit. Simcha and I were planning an Israel trip together. So we can have whatever itinerary we wanted. And we call up this Israeli tour guide operator. And we said to him, like, and we start, he says, okay, uh, what kind of trip you want? You know? So we said to him, like, we want like a learning trip. But we want to have one day that's going to be like so extreme, like an outdoors extreme day. So he says, uh, okay, uh, how extreme, you know? So, so we said, we want it so extreme that the guys feel like they're going to die, but then they don't die. <laughs> so he's like, uh, okay, uh, no problem. You know, we do it, you know? So, uh, so it was a great trip. Wednesday Very was like good with accent. Day. Very good. You like the accent. That's why yeah, Sephardic slash Israeli accent. Israeli, There's only Sephardi Israeli in my, in Israelis in my, uh, anyway. <laughs> the Wednesday of the trip, we finally get to this big day. It's our outdoors day where we, we, we start ATVing. That was the beginning of the day. We ATV out to a mountain. The ATVing was not the extreme part. We get to the bottom of this mountain and we start climbing. And, we, and the climbing up this mountain, the, the climbing was not the outdoor part either. When we get to the top of this mountain, there's a whole team of Israelis all waiting for us. And they're all huddled around this big black hole in the ground. And they all have like these harnesses and like ropes and stuff and stuff and lights. And apparently what they wanted to do was to drop us all down 150 feet into this black Gehenim, or Shlomo would say Gehenom, okay? Drop us into this big (laughs) hole. And like, if we don't die at the bottom, then you hike for five hours through like little caves. (laughs) So I was like, I became a big tzaddik. I told everybody else to go first. The kids are, I'm watching as they drop everybody down. And I'm, I'm looking at this whole scene. And this is the point that I'm, why I'm telling this story. I see th- these guys have harnesses, ropes, carabiner hooks, helmets, lights, the whole thing. And everything made sense to me. Except for one thing. There was one thing that I was just like, what, what is that? This Israeli guy, as he's lowering people down, he keeps every few minutes, he'll take a thing of water, fill up water in his mouth and go like this and spit the water out onto the rope like every every two three minutes and i'm like i'm looking at the guy and i'm like seriously like can you stop spitting just stop spitting like and and i'm looking at this whole scene and everything made sense to me except for that spitting of the water and i said to the guy do you really have to do that is that really necessary and he says uh yes (laughs) and i said why he says, you see, the sun, it's very, very hot. And it's make the rope and the carabiner very, very hot. And the friction is so, so hot. If I will not do this with the water, it will make the rope rip and he will fall and he will die. <laughs> I'm like, okay, keep on spinning, keep on spinning, you know? <laughs> and I'll never forget that story. Because here I am. I look at this whole thing and I'm like, look, I could tell you that the rope is important and I could tell you that the carabiner is important. I could tell you the helmets are important. I could tell you that every single thing is important and has value. But there's one thing in this picture that does not have value. And that is you spitting this ridiculous water. Only to find out what an incredibly crucial role it played. And I think I tell the story over to people all the time because I'm like, here you are, you're looking around, you see everybody else with value, everybody else with chashivas. You wake up in the morning and you see that person, look how important they are, look how well they're doing. And if only we would just stop and say, what critical role am I playing in the world? 
You know what I mean? Like, like to, to wake up in the morning and say, first of all, what role do I play? Do I matter to people? And, and, and what is this value? What is the intrinsic value that I have within me? Obviously, this is a whole topic. This is a whole topic. I'm, I'm going to stop. But, but the point is, I think bottom line is we have to see our value. And if we know that, if we know what our value is, and we know that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in the world every single day, life takes on a whole new meaning. It's so powerful what you're saying. I never thought of that, Ramam, as in the, the idea that the world is, is 50-50, as in a boost to your self-esteem. Meaning it, it's so powerful. What you're saying is like, the end of the day is you, when you speak Lashon Hara, most people, they go like, eh, you know, like it doesn't really matter. I think most people, they go like, it doesn't really matter. Um, Shlomo, I, I, I've heard you speak about how, I mean, first of all, I have to tell you that I was, I was telling my wife that with, with, with Ritzvi, I know that Ritzvi was into this, uh, this, you know, these, this study, if you will, of self-esteem and self-confidence. Um, with, I, I was looking around in your classes, Shlomo, and I was like, this guy doesn't have a theme. What's his theme? And my accountant brain just like went like bananas. Like, I'm like, what's, what's going on over here? Like, you know, like what box do we put this rabbi in? You know, like, wh- what is he? And, and I hopped, I told my wife, it's like, this guy is going to lead us. Like, Shoma, you are like, you are like going to battle. Like, like your voice drops 10 octaves. Like you get like a certain excitement. Like it's Parshat Tazria. Do you know what that means? It means like, and you're like, you're like ex- so excited to tell us about everything. And, and like every one of your classes that I'm watching, I'm like, this man just pumped about this week's Parsha or about tefillah or about, you know, there's like a certain excitement. And I was thinking to myself, like so many people, and I think it's a combination of just sort of feeling like it doesn't matter. Meaning like you daven and you're just like, whatever, you, you know, you pot, like, like you almost just to get it through, like to potter it up just to get to the end of it. Like, I think like, you know, if people would just like realize for just a moment, like, you know, Barak Aleinu is your key to Parnasa. Like how many people truly, 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 truly feel that? Like I always say with marriage, how, how you know, because that's my feel. I always say like so many people, they, they're just doing it. You're not hopping like, you know what I'm saying? Like you created your chaser, you're missing, you need help. Hashem's like, Azer Konegda, your wife is the most important, she's the most important person in the world. Like if you, if you really internalize that feeling, the way you would treat her, the way you would look at her, your eyes would change. Everything would change. And I think that really both of you have this like idea also. Like if you understood, if you understood what Baruch Aleinu was, if you understood what Rifa Inu was, we're in such crazy times right now, but also the stories of positivity of people who were like on death's door and all of a sudden like they're just davening and and, and non-jewish doctors are just saying like I, I heard a dozen stories in the last week they're like this makes no sense medically but this guy is going home how many stories we hear that way but i think it's true like we have to be machazic that like yeah like you're not a nobody you your shmana esrei right now is not just like you got to get it in before shkia like this is this is important it's, it's like a message. Like we got to, yeah. Shomo, this is like, I know you never thought of it like that, but like this to me is, is, is it's, it's your sideshow. Meaning it's like what, what I, 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 everything I'm listening to you, I'm like, okay, that's a good part. That's a good thing. And I'm like, this guy's just so pumped that it's Parsha's Tazria Mitzayar. Like you just couldn't be happier, more excited. I'll, I'll give you the, my favorite word, my favorite word is power. 
That's my favorite word. You know, when I'm talking about a parsha, an idea, I always say it's powerful idea. The power of Pesach, the power of Sukkot. And again, I, I hate to disagree with the, the accountant in you, if that's okay. But there's something which I think is, is, it's actually in some ways it's crucial to understand. Like if you have a specific thing, which is like, this is my thing, then you're not really plugged into Hashem's plan. Right. Because Hashem says there isn't one thing. Right. Hashem says there's 613 things. So if you can't figure out how to get pumped about all of them, you're not really on, on you're not really in the zone. So people say to me, well, what does that mean? I can't have a favorite mitzvah. I can't be extra good at something. You know, isn't there proofs and examples of this in the Gemara, you know, of people that, you know, were extra careful with, uh, with uh, Kiddush Friday night, you know, Rav Huna, and you have, what's it called? And you have other people who were super powerful about, uh, you know, Lashon Ara, like the Chafetz Chaim. You know what I love, I love saying, and I, I, again, it's just so... Powerful. 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 Yeah. <laughs> the point is not that this is my thing. The point is that this is my access point to all the things. Let me mm-hmm. give you an example. I'll just give you a simple example. Okay. Um, Ruven, you love talking about marriage. Okay. And, and Svi, you love talking about self-esteem, you said, and, you know, and under- self-awareness of a person's importance to the grand scheme of things. I'll give you an example of a combination of the two of the two of your ideas together, just to bring this point home. All right. Just imagine for one second, you have someone who is super confident in their marriage. So as an example, if their wife says to them, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you go there? The guy doesn't feel the need to start yelling back at his wife and trading insults and bringing up times when she wasn't good enough. Because he's coming from a place of self-confidence. Let's switch it for a minute. What if his access point was not self-confidence, but it was his ability to understand someone else? Maybe he's not so confident, but he understands that when his wife is saying this to him, it's coming from a place of frustration. She's had a really rough day. So his response is not angry or cynical or negative because he knows, he feels that she's not really knocking him. She's really just saying, I've had such a tough day. I know I only asked you once, but, or I know I didn't ask you at all, but why would you not have thought to clean the table yourself or to offer to put the kids to bed or whatever? That's a person who's using the access point, the gateway, if you will, of understanding to approach his marriage. Different people are built in different ways. So there's a person who's naturally empathic. It makes sense for that person to use his access point to achieve all of Torah. So understanding Hashem means not getting angry at God when things are crazy like they are right now, but understanding it. One second, I know God loves me from other proof points. So one second, this must be not only difficult for me, but it's probably very difficult for him. So why does he keep pushing this? There must be something I'm supposed to get that I'm not getting. That's the understanding portal, okay? A Rav doesn't have the option of choosing one. You know why? Because that might be his Shoresh HaNeshama, but often people in his neighborhood don't have 613 shuls or 613 rabbis to choose from. (laughs) So the rabbi needs 
to be in many ways a jack of all trades, even if he is a master of one. Right. But the ability to communicate to each person in each seat and say, this is your road to greatness, okay? This is your power. You are someone who's very impatient. So patience is not going to be your virtue. But you know what? The impatient guy, it's that guy that you go to when someone is having a big problem in the community and you need to raise funds. And, you know, you need to do it now. Or there's a problem, two people are fighting. Go to the patient guy, fight it. It's going to explode. It's going to take over the whole shul. Now is the impatient guy's time to shine. You let him use this element about himself in the most beautiful way. And he impatiently raises all the money. And while everybody else is trying to figure out which Chinese auction they should run, this guy's already done it. Okay. (laughs) That's why I feel so much power in, in every teaching. It's like, I can feel like, I remember one of the most powerful things I heard as a rabbi. My father, you know, he's one of the consummate people that I look up to. He's, he's a rabbi of a synagogue. He was a first grade, you know, Rebbe. He was a principal of a school. He opened up a whole kashrut organization in Deal, New Jersey. Any job that needed to get done, my father did it. That's the type of Baal Akhrayut he was. He was a man with big shoulders. You know, I, I always noticed this about him, and he's very, very special in that way. Now, but listen to this. Okay, ready for this? With all of these wonderful things about my father, you know, in running the synagogue and in being able to take on all these different responsibilities, one of the things that was so impressive to me was that as a rabbi, he recognized and he understood how to go into class and be excited. I came to see him once back from yeshiva. You know, when you think you know it all, you're a single guy. You think you've learned all the Torah that there is to learn. You know everything, right? I came back and I see my father and my father sitting there teaching Aleph Bet to little kids. Okay, gorgeous. And he's coming up with these unbelievably creative ways. Like, you know, I still remember there was this one kid and the kid's like, I think I'm actually quoting him verbatim. Okay. Those are the words that he said. And he's just like making the crying noises about somebody who did something to his lunch bit. I don't know what it was. No one even knew what he was saying. And he just in a huff puts his head down on the table. And my father goes into his desk and he takes something out of his desk. And he walks, couldn't see what it was. And he walks over to this child who's got his head in the, you know, the kid that you can't talk to, you can't reason with. He's in first grade. My father takes this thing from his desk and he slides it underneath the kid's arms. One second later, the kid has this big smile on his face. He's laughing. He's drying his eyes. He's participating in the class again. I was thinking to myself, what did he do? Like, did he bribe him? It was a hundred dollar bill? What did he put there? <laughs> so I kind of nonchalant walked over, right? I looked down. What did my father put there? A mirror. He slid a mirror underneath and the kid had this face on. But all of a sudden he came face to face with his own sourpuss, you know, and, and it woke him up. And I was like, that is just genius. Like, and how does he randomly have like a mirror in his drawing? Brilliant, this man. But he he would come up with all of these things. He was such a natural. I can't even describe it to you. He had the kids. You know, remember when you would take a shirt to the cleaners? Remember they would iron on a little number at the bottom of the shirt? Remember those days? 724967, like the number. You remember that? They would iron it on. 
One day his shirt was untucked and a kid says, oh, Rebbe, can I have your sticker? <laughs> and some other kid goes, my father's like, sure, he's ripping it off. And some other kid goes, I want the sticker. My oh, father man. turned it into the whole class, was fingers on the place, shouting, amen, all to get <laughs> one, the sticker on Rabbi Fari's shirt. And every day he would come in and the kids would fight about it. He was a genius this way. And, and I never understood, how do you do that? If you do that with, you know, 20-year-olds, fine. They're your intellectual equals, whatever. But this is kids. He's teaching them alphabet. Like the same thing again and again and again and again. And years later, I bumped into a, a Rebbe who said a line that helped me understand my dad. You know, it was one of those lines that unlocked this secret from my past. He said, someone asked him, how do you come into a class of kids that are six years old with the same excitement. You've done it a thousand times before. You've taught it so many times. He says so simply, so beautifully, so powerfully. He says, I don't teach subjects. I teach students. And the students are new. You know, when you think, and you're getting up to speak as a rabbi of a community, I'm not talking about Parshas Tazriah. I'm talking about Mr. Cohen over there, who I know is brokenhearted because someone spread a rumor about his daughter, okay? And she can't get married. Because even though he tries to tell everyone, everyone just thinks, you know, he's just a father trying to protect his daughter. So he's heartbroken. So I'm talking about Lashon Hara. I'm channeling all of the frustration and desperation of this man and I'm aiming it at that person that I know started the discussion. Wow. So what I'm doing is I'm taking, I'm drawing. I always thought that's what it means when it says about Eliezer, that he was domestic Eliezer. He wasn't drawing on, on, the, on Torah. He was taking all the Torah that Avram felt that he was communicating. Avram was screaming at everyone and no one was listening. He took the frustration of his rabbi, of his master. He took the chesed of his master. He took the emet of his master. And he said to everyone, don't you hear that what you're wasting your life on is just not true. Let me show you something that will pay you dividends forever and ever and ever. Wow. That's where it comes from. Yeah, it's amazing. You're, you're, I have to tell you, I learned so much tonight like if I would, if I would sum up what you just said and, and what you were saying before it's the, in, in different words is that it's almost like a hurricane gets, gets its power from the water and then it just keeps dumping the water down. And then it just keeps dragging up that energy and keep dumping it down. Like the ultimate rabbi is drawing from his congregants, what their needs are and then dumping it back on them packaged through the lens of the Torah and their understanding like this message is really speaking to me for my everyday life. By it's the way, so by different. The way, Shlomo, it's like I, amazing. I love it. What? That, that story about, come on, Ruben, that story about his father and the mirror, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I am totally, I'm totally, by the way, I am totally going to be telling that story as if it was me and my father. <laughs> You're gonna, one day, we're going to be at a conference. Here. I'm going to forget it was you and your father. I'm going to be like, and let me tell you about my father. Wait, was your father, wasn't your father in like investment banking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But let me just tell you anyway, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, my father has many more. I'm not, I won't, I won't share it with you now. But can, can I just share just, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. Have you ever been speaking to a crowd which like wasn't so religious 
and you had like a from joke that only you in that whole room would really get. Yeah. You know, anyone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you just say it anyway, just because yeah. like you also need to be entertained if you're going to yeah. like maintain your energy levels. No, have you ever done that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I have jokes that I'll throw out, and I know, like, no one will get them. And there's always, like, this one random person that actually got it, because, like, yeah. he ha happened to be listening on Torah anytime, you know, and that rabbi dropped it. You know, it's so interesting. So, like, random things like that, you know. So I just want to share this with you guys, and I don't know if everyone else will appreciate it, but this is the pshat. This is what the deepest meaning is when we say that every generation gets the Rabbanim that it deserves. So in the generation of Moshe, you get Moshe. The generation of Yiftach, they're empty-headed people. Who do they get as a leader? They get Yiftach. So I always understood that, you know what that meant? That meant like, you know, you gotta earn your, you gotta earn your rabbi. Like, you know, Shmuel HaKaton, he was someone who was Ra'ui to have Nivu'ah, but because his generation didn't deserve it, so he couldn't tap in. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't get that Nivu'ah. So they don't deserve to have such a good rabbi. And I realized later that that's, that's, maybe that's part of the shot, but that's not the depth of it. You wanna hear the depth of it. Listen to this. This is like a punch in the amygdala. Okay, ready for this? It's crazy. It's, it's mamish crazy. Listen to this. It's not that Hashem punishes a weak generation by giving it weaker rabbis. The whole point of a rav is not for him to teach what he wants to teach, but rather for him to understand, to draw from them. What do they need? Wow. What, will, what will excite them? What will be relatable to them? And by definition, if you have Moshe Rabbeinu and everybody is on Instagram, Moshe would have like nothing to teach our generation. He would be like, come on, guys, you should be willing to be Moshe Nefesh. And your son just died, Aaron. Uh, you really should kind of be quiet and not react at all. Because you know what? He says like two words and Aaron is just supposed to be quiet after that. You understand what I'm saying? God gave, and, and in a way, we're like knocking ourselves. We're like rubbish rabbis right? But we're exactly what the doctor ordered because we're close enough to our people. And so many rabbis don't get this. They create this barrier. I'm the rabbi. You're the people. Let me give you of God's wisdom. No, it's where, where are you? What's, what is your pain point? What is your growth point? What's stopping you from getting there? And let me like live in that for a minute. You know, By the way, Shlomo talking about that, this exactly what you're saying right now about about not trying to to be in that other that situation be what you're but be what you're supposed to be what somebody else wants you to be but this is exactly what I was referring to earlier seeing who you are and knowing that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing right now in your generation in your situation like not being someone else or somewhere else or some imaginary figure but like who am I? What's my value? And, and what role am I supposed to be playing right now if I'm doing that? And like, that's it. That's it's it. unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You guys are amazing. I, I, I can't thank you enough for accepting this invitation to come back on. I hope you'll join me again. Um, I do want to tell everybody that they can follow you guys both on Torah anytime. Of course, they could just click the follow button um, and they will, or if they go sign up to the Daily Dose, they will probably see you, one of you every day some, or something like that. So they definitely can sign up for that. But I want to I wanna tell you that this past job is I had one of the most um, incredible experiences because there's a lot of women who 
I feel like are going through very hard times now. Men, men and women experience things very differently. And for a lot of women, it's almost like their, their nest, their baby has been like um, invaded by, you know, children just not leaving the house and husbands not leaving the house and 24 hour cooks. And it, it's just such a hard time for women right now. I'm not saying this to be, um, what's the word? Um, patronizing, you know, like men, it's very hard for men also, but I feel like the domain of the woman has become like invaded by all these outsiders who are supposed to leave and go out of the house. So this past Shabbos, I picked up, um, Victor Miller's biography and I opened it up and I see over there that I have a bookmark from probably about four years ago when I read this book. So I have like a bookmark and I'm like, Oh, I wonder what, you know, what I bookmarked in that thing. I want to read you guys a paragraph, which to me was so powerful and so appropriate for what's going on today, like in, in this, in this matzah. And it really touches on so much of what you both spoke about tonight. He writes like this. He says, now I'm not one of these guys. I, I, I hate reading from books. So I'm going to just going to paraphrase. Okay. But Ravigner Miller was very big into the virtues of women. He says who with dedication, they raised Jewish families. He held them in such high esteem that he felt that he could never praise them sufficiently. He often equated mothers who toiled all day to raise their families to the greatest Russia yeshivas as the women were giving sheer with their cooking, raising the next generation of Torah scholars. He asserted that when women were in their kitchens preparing food for their families, they were like Kohanim in the Beis HaMikdash bringing a carbon mincha. Their hard work was comparable to the avoda of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. And when they changed their baby's diapers, it was a reach michoach ta Hashem. He said that women are even greater than men because they don't get the credit that they deserve. And he said, it says in the book that he constantly was reaffirming for women how much Hashem loves their avodah. And what struck me so much is that we're living in a day and age in my mind that it's almost like Shabbos. In, of course, we're all on Zoom, so we're doing malacha. But so much of what we normally do, you leave the house Geico and all these other insurance companies are giving discounts because no one's driving their cars, going to work. All these things have sort of been like slow down and shut off. And I feel like it's almost like Shabbos in the sense that you're home with your families and you're just enjoying the moments of family time, the extra time to learn, the extra time to just walk around in your talis and filling and just sing davening. And to, to, to sit in those moments, understanding that you, this is a carbon mincha. This is, a, this is what Hashem wants from us right now. We are exactly where Hashem wants us to be. And if we could appreciate and get sipuk from those things every day, rather than saying, I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I was doing something else. If we could appreciate that for a few minutes, I feel like, and I'm not one of these people who's like, telling you what, what's going to be like when Mashiach comes. But it's like, it's almost like there's a preparation here for the Yom Shekulay Shabbos. Like when Mashiach comes, it's like, you will not need to run out of your house. You will not need to run out for your job. Just like sitting and just basking. And I could tell you that while it's so difficult and so challenging for so many people, 
with Parnasa and with health and with so many things that are going on right now, so many people that I've spoken to who are big people, I said, how are you coping now? Coping? Me and my Gemara? I'm not coping. I'm thriving. I'm loving it. I'm sitting there. People talk to me about their families. We're bonding. We have time for each other. This is incredible. So the ability to utilize what you have rather than thinking back to what you did have or could have is besides the confidence, it's just a ticket to happiness. And when we understand that this is where Hashem wants us all to be, it just, it's, it's easier to get through these challenging times when you just focus on that. Now, Thursday night, Emirs Hashem, we're going to have on Ramesha Tevulif and Rabbi Chaim Rosenfeld. And next Monday night, at 8.30 p.m., we're going to have Mrs. Slavi Young-Rice-Wolf and Mrs. Jackie Bitone for an exclusive women's night right here on Torah Anytime. Thank you both for joining. I cannot thank you both enough. This thank was incredible. You. I've learned so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.